the stairs. I met a man who wasn't there. Who wasn't there again today. I wish I wish he'd go away. It's Manson Mitchell on the weekend with Gary Manson's Suzanne Mitchell. A double shot of good conversation with great guests to power up your day. Manson Mitchell, you're on the air. Thank you, Eric Kramer. Hi, everybody. Happy Saturday. Happy weekend to you, wherever you may be. I'm Gary Mance. I'm Suzanne Mitchell. Together, we are Manson Mitchell in your ears for the hour and looking forward to the show very much. We get to talk once again with our friend Carl Petrie through the miracle of Zoom and telephone technology. We're putting all of this together as we speak, and that gives us a moment to say hello to our stalwart producer. His name is Nathan Miller, but we like to call him Nathan Detroit. Hey, Good morning and afternoon to you, Gary, and to Zan, and finally found my way back home to Detroit. I was kind of all over the place last week. Must have been like on some weird road trip adventure. There you Saw were some good sights, to, though. You are going to Cincinnati, I think. Yeah. <laughs> Cincinnati and maybe Indiana. There you go. Now you're back in, in Detroit. So... How's everything going there? It's going yeah. well. It's that time of the year where Seattle just becomes beautiful blue sky and green trees and green grass so far. Eventually, all that grass is going to turn brown. But hey, great time to be here. And of course, the snow-capped mountains as well. We're just coming off our brown grass now. We've had quite the drought. Believe it or not, there you can really? have a drought in Florida. When it and rains so every single afternoon, you get a, fo- no, a drought. No, no, no. In the no. summertime, <laughs> the, you would think that it does. And when it rains, right. it's unlike Seattle, where you can be in a state of perpetual drizzle at times. But here, here it comes in Florida, down in buckets. It does. It's, people yeah. talk about New Orleans, which is much the same way there on the Mississippi. But here in Florida on the Gulf, it will rain, hammering down rain for a half hour and then vanish. Yeah. <laughs> so your streets are wet and the next day they're dry and then here comes some more rain and of course thunder and lightning. We are the lightning capital of the world, hence the name of our hockey team, yes. the Lightning. And you yeah. got their hat on to represent them for those That's people right. that can't see. In anticipation of next year we'll try again Florida Panthers or as the Lightning fans call them the Stinking Panthers. <laughs> they are they are working miracles in the NHL playoffs. And they and find themselves tonight. tonight. They will play the Vegas, Las Vegas Golden Knights, otherwise known as the Vegas Golden Knights, VGK, as they like to say. Mm-hmm. And I don't even have a dog in that fight. For me, it's a matter of let the best team win because they both have gone through so much to get where they are. Starting tonight, it happens the Stanley Cup final. That's right. And there are at least two or three people listening who give a damn about it. <laughs> but remember, like Seattle waited not what? Not everybody's a basketball fan. I was on the uh, warpath in my own mind against the NHL for 20 years. Get a team in Seattle. What's with you people? Well, it came down mainly to the arena. It mm-hmm. had to be up to certain standards. But once that requirement was satisfied, we got the Kraken, and they impressed everybody this year. They yeah. went from boring dull, plodding hockey ho-hum to something glorious. They were able to win a round there, and they've only been around two seasons, so we're very proud of the Seattle Kraken. And we'll just have to see what happens next year. Wait till next (laughs) year. That's right. Okay, today we are very fortunate once again to be speaking with our good friend, and actually Suzanne Carl Petri. It's, It's almost offensive to regard him as only a good friend, we went and stayed with he and his wonderful wife, Suli, last summer. They, they offered their hospitality, and they couldn't have been more generous. We loved the time we had with them. We loved them and still do. Hope to see them again soon. So our friend, he feels like a big brother to me, to be honest with you. And Carl is joining us today for some metaphysical Q&A because there are a few topics that would be out of bounds with Carl. He has lived, to say the least, a full life and an interdimensional life in a way because he has the gift of what is called retrocognition. He can look at a building without any prior research. That's, that's the key to his mastery of this. It's amazing. It's a gift, but can also be a burden, as I think we'll hear shortly. He can look into the past by walking into a building and tell people what was going on there, who was doing it, and what the implications are. He can do it For historical purposes, he can do it for ghost research purposes as well. He's an amazing man. 
So with metaphysical Q&A in mind, why don't we say hello to Carl Petri and get this show on the road. Carl, how are you doing today, sir? I'm doing fine. And like always, being on your show was a highlight for me. I love it. Fantastic. <laughs> I, I, I picture you with your car, well, your Pontiac or your Corvette. You've got the phone up to your ear. I know that you don't in reality. I just like the image. <laughs> <laughs> He's a car buff, everybody. He's a car expert. He goes to the car club. You talk Pontiacs with him. You talk about Corvettes. Any car of distinction, he is in the know. You're a multifaceted guy, Carl, and that makes you all the more fascinating. Well, I don't try. It just happens to come come my way. You you wrote on the back of, of your second book. The first book is Absent Witness. The second book is Somewhere the Dead Are Singing. And on the back of the book, it says that you believe strongly in a balanced life and that people should be cautioned about getting too strongly immersed in the psychic. And you have developed some interests that are definitely in this physical realm, including your interest in cars. So uh, I think that balanced life really helps you handle both things well. So your psychic life and your mediumship life doesn't take over or, or, or take too much of your, of your soul. Well, the parapsychologist, Dr. Joanne McMahon, when I met her at the uh, uh, parapsychology foundation in Manhattan, uh, after she met me, she saw that I had these interests in other things. And so she approached me and she said, don't ever change. Because one of the problems there are with people who are psychics or, or uh, mediums, uh, she says that they want to it 100%. She says, and then they start acting kind of squirrely after a while. Because you're, you're grounded. It's like this is a part of your life, but it's not everything. And I believe that she was correct. Because uh, if something starts to overwhelm me psychically, whatever, I just go out and wash my car or do something like that and just to get rid of it. So I find that after all these years that Dr. McMahon was a hundred percent correct. And it's not just the cars. You're also an, an independent filmmaker as well. Gary and I have seen some of your films. And, and so here's yet another interest, another way of, of looking at the world and, and handling the nuts and bolts as the director of uh, several films. Well, as a matter of fact, right now, because there's really no market as there used to be for B-films, uh, low-budget films, because, uh, number one, buying DVDs. Now, if I make a film, the only way I could get my money back is to sell the product, you know, on a disc. People don't buy discs, or very few do, so I can't get my money back after making a film. And now the other thing is people want everything streamed and all that. So the minute you make it and the minute it starts to stream, well, you're not going to get a nickel. Every, everything's going to be for free. So why bother? But on the flip side, uh, now there are companies in California who when are making a film in this area, New York, New Jersey. Uh, they will contact me and I will assist them on different various uh, positions at, with their company here in, in the, on the East Coast. So I could be an assistant to the uh, producer. Uh, I could help with the sound or I could help, you know, something like that. So I'm now with the big boys. Now, when I look at these trucks coming in with this equipment, it's, oh, my God. You know, they have trailers and, and personnel setting up and doing this and that. I had to do that myself before, you know. It, what what's interesting about that, Carl, is that you know all the different aspects of filmmaking because you have made films. Right. But I would think if I were coming in from New York, the, the thing I would want you for more than anything else is locations because you've lived there all your life. You know all these locations. And when Gary and I came to visit, you were showing us various locations where The Sopranos had been filmed. You know, this is right. this is where they had the funeral parlor. This is where they had the ice cream shop, and then you took us to the uh, the strip club, the Bada Bing. And right. I didn't, I didn't, I thought maybe it was going to be a little bar. It's actually a strip club. Yes, 
And and so I would think if I was coming from New York, I'd say, Carl, help with the locations. <laughs> tell, tell us the various places we can. You we would can know. Film. Right. Because you know everything like the back of your hand over there. Well, actually, when they're coming in here, so, they have so much money that they go to studios. I mean, huge studios. And they build on the stage what they're looking for. But if they want an ice cream parlor, they build one. And I sit in total amazement. It's like I never could do that. I had to take, I had to go to a location and shoot it there. Now they have these trucks that pull in and all these people are working there. It's like ants, like in an anthill. They all start coming out and they have these guns and everything to start shooting nails into, uh, boards and they come up with these backdrops that are incredible so uh I, i'm open to them if they ever need anything but so far in, in the uh the work that i've been doing it's i just sit back and just watch them build everything and what a contrast with the career there which made him an odd star and much beloved despite his inadequacy as a director if i'm going to put it mildly because, uh, I mean, directorially, he became rather an industry joke, and yet people continue to love Ed Wood. They love right. the guy. In the movie Ed Wood, play, the role being played brilliantly by Johnny Depp, and Martin Landau as, as Bella Lugosi won an Oscar for Best Supporting Actor. If you haven't seen that movie, please get it. It's a Tim Burton directorial triumph, and that kind of production is just one of those little gems in life, a cinematic gem. Ed Wood. And in it, you'll recall the scene, because we've talked about it, Carl, where they're filming with equipment, which was essentially stolen. <laughs> they were going to give it back, but, you know, they had unauthorized use of some film equipment, cameras included, and they're in Los Angeles trying to film a scene, and a cop comes around the corner, and they had to beat feet out of there. They didn't want to get busted. It's a big deal to even get permission, and of course, it's very costly, as you're indicating, to go any place, especially New York, if you plan to make a movie. Oh, absolutely. Yeah, I recall, well, you know, the people from Ed Wood, you know, uh, like Dolores Fuller, Conrad Brooks, Paul Marco, they're all friends of mine. And so they would tell me about what was going on with Ed Wood and what things were really incorrect in the movie. Uh, and then they would tell me what was correct. Now, Dolores Fuller, which was his girlfriend at the time, uh, she's when he used to walk around with the Angora sweaters, which is mentioned in the uh, his biography yes. and also film. Yes. Uh, you know, it's really funny because he made her sound like kind of, you ah, hate these words, flaky. But when I, I was shooting a film here, uh, we were supposed to use a location, a house. And I had all my actors and everything else. And what happens is at the last minute, the house that we're going to use, the person who had it said that uh, you can't use the house. He goes, my, uh, my husband is not here. I know he gave you permission, but I just don't feel right if he's not here. Now, here I am with cameras, people, lighting, everything ready to go. So I made a panic call to an attorney I knew he had a very big, huge house. And I asked, could we shoot there? And he said, yes, talk to my wife. So I spoke to her and I said, we're in it. We're really in a hurry. We have to shoot this scene. I got all the actors here. I have everything ready to go. And I said that uh, uh, we have to do something because I have everybody, you know, here. We're ready to go. And they, uh, he said, okay, you could talk to my wife and make sure everything is okay. All right. So I go there and with the house, beautiful house with a white carpet. And she said, you could shoot here. She says, in an hour, hour and a half. I'll let you shoot here for an hour and a half, which is nothing in shooting. So here I am throwing up lights, doing all this stuff to, to shoot this scene. And so Dolores Fuller walks up to me. And now we're in a panic. You have to understand, we're trying to do everything as fast as our hands can move. And she says, Carl, she says, what's my motivation for the part? And I looked at her and says, I'll tell you the motivation. We got 15 minutes to set up and ready to shoot. That's the motivation. <laughs> and then we got to get out of here. And so the woman says, I have a white carpet. Make sure you don't get it dirty. And here we are with, 
you know, old tables that were lying in dirt and this and that. So besides trying to get this thing set up, we were working with a white carpet. And to make, you know, it just, it worked out. We shot it. The scene came out okay. I mean, it could have been better, but we shot it. And that's, that's the kind of craziness that happens when you're involved with, um, you know, low-budget B-movies. That is crazy. It's also part of the adventure. There's a, to my overstating to say, there's a, there's a certain romance by being that aspirational. You want to get that thing done. You want to get it filmed. You want to get it out to market. And doing it under that kind of pressure and with deadlines as well is part of the adventure of making a movie as an independent filmmaker. You didn't have some guy in a Hollywood studio saying, we're giving you the green light. Right. And a lot, you know, a lot of the actors are working for free. They're doing, they're, uh, they're trying to get their name out there to be an actor, and so they're doing it. So you have to work around their schedule. They could be a student. They could be, uh, they could work odd hours, and you're trying to get them to, you know, to do this part. There was, uh, you know, one film where uh, Michael Thomas was his name, and we were shooting a film. He was in a hospital in Philadelphia. And we already started shooting this movie, and I needed him. He was one of the main stars. And so what I would do is I would go to visit him in Philadelphia and tell the the, uh, the doctors there that um, Michael would like to go outside for a while. He'd like me to take him, you know, for a ride and to relax. And the doctor said, you know, that's, that's a pretty good idea. You know, why don't you do that? So I would take him out of the hospital, get him into my car, run him up to the set, shoot the scenes, get him back in the car, run back to Philadelphia, and put him back in his hospital bed. <laughs> that goes to show you the kind of dedication people have and the things you have yeah. to do. Yeah, you do what you have to do to get the job done. How far have you traveled in order to do filming? Because I, I think of you as a local New Jersey guy, New Jersey right across from New York City, right. but... How, what's the farthest place you ever had to go to film something? Uh, when it comes to my, you know, my ready, my work that I had to do, it would be Virginia, but when in the actual entertainment uh, field to, to shoot things, it would probably be within a radius of a hundred miles of uh, of New York City. Oh, very about, good. About a hundred miles. Yeah. Very good. See, in, in New Jersey, you have to remember why people come to New York and New Jersey to shoot is that New Jersey and New York, especially New Jersey, we have a desert called the Pinelands. So it's a desert. It looks like a desert. If you were shooting there and you said it was Arizona, you couldn't tell the difference. Then, of course, we have the entire state has a coastline to it. But we have a coastline for like 120 miles of coastline. And then we have mountains, you know, plenty of mountains here in this state. So what do you, what would you like to shoot? Mountains, the seashore, a desert? Well, in New Jersey, you have it. So it's a very good place to shoot films. And, and you have it all relatively close together. Oh, sure. New Jersey isn't that big. So the furthest would, would have to be from the tip of uh, New Jersey from the north to like Cape May in the south, and that's probably about 140 miles. 140 miles. So. Out west, there, as you know from your travels, there. if you want to go from Seattle to Portland, which would be uh, like a hop and a skip for a lot of people if they want to go away for a weekend going in either direction, you can plan on about three hours depending on the traffic. The states are bigger out there, and Washington State is the smallest of the western states. In the continental right. U.S., I mean. And so, uh, you know, when you go back east, there's a there are so much activity in so many hubs, chief among them New York City, of course, that create this sense of condensed living. When we visited you and the first night we were there after dinner, you said, hey, I'm going to take us into the city. We'll go to Times Square. OK, I'm ready to go. Check, please. And we went there and I, I was stunned by the immensity and the intensity, but also the density of the population and all of the activity there. You're talking about the nerve center of the world in many ways. Sure. 
Listen to this. He's so casual. Sure. But also, <laughs> he's used to it. This, this guy, he goes, he, he's not, he's intrepid. He'll go in and listen, ladies and gentlemen, I kid you not. I hope they haven't raised it lately. If you go from New Jersey through the uh, Lincoln Tunnel, I presume also the Holland Tunnel, when you're going into New York City, going in, getting out free, getting in, it's $32. So if you left something behind, you're leaving the city. Oh, I forgot to get this, or I left this behind. It's another thirty-two dollars. And then don't don't forget if you have to park. Yeah, oh my and God. then you have to find oh find a place to park. They show on TV. That's what gets me, Carl. They show New York City Seinfeld. They used to see this, and they're trying to squeeze a car in on the street. The, yeah, for like free. that space is actually going to be there for you <laughs> when you want it. Well, a lot of people when they own cars, there they after they park it. They're afraid to move it because you'll never get your parking space again. Yeah. Yeah. They, it they, is they, that bad. Yeah. They did a couple of shows like that on Seinfeld and we just laughed. Um, you know, I grew up in the Chicago area, so I'm, I'm familiar with cars and density and, and all of that from being downtown, but uh, far worse in New York than Chicago to try and find a parking space because every street's got no parking signs from end to end. They will tell you in a heartbeat. You know, if, if you're if you're a couple of minutes late, they will tell you. And what, yeah. another thing about New York City is that the people who have lived there their entire lives, they see what cars are, they see them on the streets in the trucks, whatever, but they really don't know what it's like to own one. In my heart, I'm a, I, I can tell you that they believe that you drive into New York, you know where you're going to go, you get out of the car, and you fold it up into a little valise. And you carry it into wherever you're going, you come out, and you open the valise, and the car appears again. They have no idea about parking, parking garages. Remember, they never had anything to do with a car. And then when you're driving and you're stuck in traffic or whatever, they don't understand why you're not moving. Now, this sounds like a fantasy. This cannot be true. Trust me when I tell you that. There was one professor who never owned a car in her life. And I was at her home, uh, her apartment, and she wanted a ride to Newark Airport. Now, Newark Airport is the closest airport to Manhattan. She was in Manhattan on 42nd Street. And so I said, okay, we waited till like 2 o'clock in the morning uh, after our little conference there that we had. And she got in my truck, and we're, I'm driving with a parapsychologist, Dr. McMahon, and we're going through the Lincoln Tunnel. Now, the Lincoln Tunnel, it's like a spiral. It goes, it goes south, then it goes west and east. It's like a spiral. And then you start heading towards the New Jersey Turnpike, which will take you to the airport. Well, she's sitting in the car. We come out of the Lincoln Tunnel. We start to spiral. We start to turn left. And so it's going uphill. And she starts screaming in the car, where are you going? I said, we're going to Newark Airport. And she's saying, but Newark Airport, she's showing her, her finger down south. And she says, it's there. And you're going the other direction. I said, I have to get to the turnpike to get to the airport. She goes, you don't know where you're going. The airport is there. I said, gee, if I knew ahead of time, I would have told the state of New Jersey and New York, please build me a roadway so that I could take uh-huh. her to the airport. She had no concept of it. Now, you sometimes hear me talk about this uh, other paranormal type of person, Ingo Swan. We were in central New Jersey. And remember, he's been in New York like, you know, for many, many, many years. And we were on the New Jersey Turnpike. They were doing construction, and we were stopped. This was like one o'clock in the morning. The traffic came to a complete stop. And he's sitting in the back seat and he goes, why did we stop? I said, well, it's a traffic jam. I can't move. He goes, well, go around it. I said, I can't. I'm in the lane and we cannot move. And he said, I don't understand. Why are we just sitting here? And I had to explain to him what a traffic jam was. He never experienced it before. So and that's my thing about people who live in Manhattan who never owned a car. They have no idea what it's like. 
Well, they even have traffic jams in Seattle. They know about sitting on the yeah. five. I, I sat on Interstate Five quite a bit when I lived out in the Seattle area. And you folks on the east side, we're not neglecting four or five. You have a legitimate mess on your hands. We You're don't right. wish to disrespect <laughs> your agony trying to get to work and then home again. Yeah, but you're talking about one in the morning. I mean, there has to be some point in time where you are able to get around. And that's just crazy that you've got 24-hour traffic like that. Well, they had an accident and, and it just it blocked everything. And you just, we could yeah. not move northbound. And so, you know, it's sort of like, well, that's what happens. You know, it's a very big thoroughfare. I mean, the New Jersey Turnpike is the artery that if you want to go from anywhere from down south and you want to head north uh, to, let's say, to go to New York, Massachusetts, New England, anywhere like that, you have to go down up the New Jersey Turnpike. So you're going to have traffic there 24-7. Mm. Carl Petrie's wow. advice to me as he was guiding us in from the New Jersey Turnpike to our exit leading to Kearney, New Jersey, where he has lived for many, many years. He you did a beautiful job, naturally, of steering us toward your home. But you did warn me. You said, Gary, I know you're a polite guy. You want to be nice. Forget all that. You you have to get off at this exit. Everybody's trying to do the same thing. Just maneuver your car to get to that exit. Don't worry about the other guys. Just be safe, but get to that place because that is your exit. And suddenly I had this swell of determination <laughs> and I didn't even get honked at. Speaking of which, Carl, I found out something from you. If somebody is mad at another driver, people have this, I guess it's a stereotypical image of the aggressive New York driver who's going in and out of lanes, you know, not even pulling aside for ambulances. They're, they want to get where they're going and they get angry and they're laying on the horn. They're aggressively honking at you. What happens if you do that today in New York City? Oh, you get fined. What's uh, the fine? Three hundred dollars. Whoa! There you go. So we're not politely in New York City if right. you're going to the Big Apple. We're not interested in your horns. We have to take a break. <laughs> we do just the one. Okay. And Carl will be back and just tip off Carl because we didn't mention that to, this to him before the show. But please stay tuned to hear the story of something that Carl actually teaches to school children. You know about show and tell? How about an object that was in the World Trade Center on 9-11? How it came into Carl Petrie's possession is a story unto itself, and the meaning of the object from which he can read energy. That's called psychometry. I've experienced that myself when I practiced a little bit of that back in the day. This is an extraordinary account, and you will want to stay tuned and hear that. Carl Petrie is our honored guest of the hour. We are Manson Mitchell. You are our loving listeners, and we love to have you tuned in to AM 1150. We'll be right back. Hi, everybody. This is Anson Williams from Happy Days, and I'm so excited to tell you about American Road. It is the best car travel magazine in the world. They have the most fantastic adventures detailed in each magazine, with all your itinerary, we could just jump in the car with your family and have the most fabulous adventures you've ever had in your life. Please, get a copy of American Road and start your own adventure. Staying connected with Gary Mance and Suzanne Mitchell is easy. Just go to manceandmitchell.com for the latest info on topics and guests. Friend Gary Mance and Suzanne Mitchell on their Facebook pages and like the Mance and Mitchell show page at facebook.com slash Mitchell. If you're on Twitter, share a follow with Gary and Suzanne at Mance Mitchell. Join Gary and Suzanne Friday and Saturday mornings at 10 a.m. for an unusual show that covers everything from personal growth to the paranormal. Here's an amazing act. Here's a tremendous act. Here's a startling act. The amazing, the thrilling, the greatest, spectacular, incredible, exciting, wonderful, world-famed, most unusual novelty act. The home of the A-Team of Alternative Talk is manceandmitchell.com. Heard right here on Alternative Talk 1150 AM or streaming live from your computer anywhere. Terry Loving wants to help you with your online marketing challenges right now. She has several courses she is giving away to help you get your business working for you online. Yes, giving away. WordPress websites are her specialty, yet her technical skills go way beyond that. Check out her blog at terryloving.com or email her directly at terry at 
terryloving.com. That's terry at terryloving.com. On Friday, Manson Mitchell welcomed Marie D. Jones, author of The Afterlife Book, Heaven, Hell, and Life After Death, Journey Through the Science Behind Energy and Consciousness. On Saturday, Matt Shea sits in the guest host seat and talks to Kevin McDonald, another popular radio broadcaster on KKNW. Be prepared for a fascinating conversation. Bringing you mastery and mystery since 2007. We are Manson Mitchell, Friday and Saturday mornings at 10 on Alternative Talk, AM 1150. Need help getting started with self-help? You came to the right place. Alternative Talk, 1150. Welcome back to Manson Mitchell and our guest this hour, Carl Petrie from New Jersey. Uh, Absent Witness is his first book. Somewhere the Dead Are Singing is his second book. And Carl, I think you have a pretty active Facebook page. And is there anything else you'd like to share with our listeners about where to find you or, or what you're up to? Well, if there's any kind of personal appearances, I put it on, on Facebook. Uh, usually it's in this area, you know, the New York metropolitan area. Uh, I don't really, right, at present, I don't really travel that far away from here. Uh, anyway, right. I would I put it on Facebook. All right. And I just want to spell it because there's uh, alternate spellings in other universes. But your name is K-A-R-L. P-E-T-R-Y, Carl Petrie. The books right. are wonderful. They're, the first book is really more about uh, how you got started with your unusual abilities to see and communicate with the dead. And then Somewhere the Dead Are Singing is full of a bunch of good stories, some of which we've talked about and some of which I, I think we will still be talking about. But Gary has one particular thing in mind, Gary. So what is it you want to ask? There is a figure or figurine that was recovered from the World Trade Center after 9-11. Carl Petri possesses that item, and he talks about it, particularly to school children. And it's really kind of a tragic show and tell, if you will. Carl, I would like for you to tell that story because it's just so fascinating, and it's also weighted by the tragedy of that day and yet you are able to speak about it eloquently and tell people about its significance and what by holding it what you were able to glean from holding this object in your hand please tell the story okay uh after uh, 9-11 there, there was a massive cleanup and you know of course they're looking for bodies or body parts and they're going through the rubble and one of the uh persons you know that was involved with or whatever i knew him and he went into the rubble and he pulled out a little it looked like a little toy soldier it looked like a davy crockett uh, with a gun above his head and so um he said would you like it and i said sure so you know i put it in my hand and then i could see who owned it and where it was this little uh figurine or little toy soldier or whatever is made out of, uh, you know, rubber plastic, and it's like a very light blue in color. And I held it in my hands, and I could see that it was on the desk of one of the people in this tower, and uh, it was given to him by his son. And here it is that, you know, the man put it on his desk where he worked, and that day he probably, I'm sure, most likely he died. But that little figurine that his son gave him exists, and I have it. So what I do is, uh, usually on 9-11, I'm asked to uh, give, give a speech for our local town here. I give all their speeches. And uh, all the st- uh, students from the school are there, and I hold up this little toy. Because now we're talking about 9-11. Now, of course, these kids were not born you know, during or, you know, only after this happened. So I have to explain to them about 9-11. And I tell them about, you know, the mothers and fathers who will never come home that day because of what happened. And then I hold up that little toy. How strange. The parents never came home. I says, but this little toy exists. And I talk about that toy, about it was on his desk. I could see it on his desk. He had a 
not only that, he had a couple other things to decorate his desk when he was working. And here it is. Um, tragedy happens. Everything is gone, except now I can hold that little toy in my hand. And it seems to hit home with the, with the uh, boys and girls at the school. Uh, there's a dead silence. Usually when you're uh, giving a speech to um, school children, they're fidgety. They look at the floor. They look at, they're looking around. You know, they don't want to really hear what you have to say. But it's really strange that that little toy holding it up in the air and showing these students, who's probably at the time maybe about 300 students, and I'm holding this toy up, and all of a sudden everything gets quiet, nobody's fidgety, and they're all just staring at that little toy. So for what it's worth, that little toy has helped me pass the word on about a horrible thing that happened to a whole new generation. And these were youngsters, of course, who were not born when right. that terrible day came to us, came to our shores. How do the young people that you talk to respond to the historic nature of that day, of that event? Are they able to put it into some kind of context that you recognize? Very rarely. You know, it's uh, it's the mindset of today. Um, most people have the attention span of, of a... Uh, a ferret on speed. <laughs> I was going to say a goldfish, but you came up with a better one. Yeah, ferret on speed. And it's, they don't get it. And uh, you really have to bring it home to them and really have to bring, like with, with the toy soldier, about saying that, you know, the father that had this toy is not coming home. He is not coming home. This, I have the toy but the father's not coming home. And if you keep saying it and you try to, you know, illustrate it somehow, they seem to get it. And after a while, yes, they, they quiet down and they look at you and, and that's about it. But I feel they really don't feel the entire tragedy or, or everything involved with it. They just don't get it. It's really a shame. I wish I could say otherwise. Oh, yeah, it hits home. And, boy, they, they look at me and they and they think of the situation, everything, they don't. I think in some cases, they're just too young. That that uh, uh, that empathy kind of develops a little bit later in life. And I, I know um, recently um, I lost a, a family member and the youngest children, when they heard that grandpa was not going to be back again, just kind of shrugged their shoulders and said, okay. And then kind of went on doing whatever it was they were doing while the adults are sobbing. And right. and so I think in part, little children, e either, either one of two things, either they know it's a natural part of our lives or they don't have the entire brain development to really understand, you know, what it means not to see one of their favorite people again. Well, I'm like, not, I'm not sure which. When I go to a funeral parlor and the, uh, the body is laid out and I've been to a couple where young children are laughing, running around with their cell phones. And then they, they start taking pictures of the deceased. They're laughing, right. taking pictures of grandma and I'm there looking at it saying, you know, if I was their parents, I'd customize their face. Right, right. You know, what do you say? Yeah. What can you possibly say to these kids running around laughing and taking pictures of, you know, them standing in front of the casket waving? Yeah. It's, it's weird, but, you know, that's what it is. You know, when you talked about the, the object itself, you said that it was given by the son to the father. Right. And you didn't really expound on anything else about the father. So how you told the story today made it very neutral. Um, perhaps uh, my question is to do with the energy that's held in objects so that there could be positive energy or there could be negative energy. And when, when you own something, 
does that energy stay with those objects, you know, forever? Oh, yeah. I would say for the most part it does. You see with that uh, little figurine that was on his desk, right. uh, I could see the father. He was a little bit on heavy set, and uh, he would sit there. It was a cubicle, and I could see where it was in the cubicle. And when the father was on the phone talking to a, a customer or whatever, he would sometimes grab that little soldier or that you know the figurine there, and he would hold it in his hands, and he would play with it as he was talking to the customer. So that was a part of his daily routine, to grab this little toy. And he had a couple other things there, too. But this was one of them, and he would grab it, he would hold it, and then talk to the customer with this in his hand. And then when he was ready to uh, end his conversation, he would put the figurine back on his desk and get ready to start another call. So that energy about him holding this is, was within that, that piece of rubber plastic. And when I grabbed it, I could see the man. I, I know that his son gave it to him, and that it's an you know that he used it all the time on his desk as he was making phone calls to uh, to customers. If it was if it was utilized, if it was a utilitarian item where he makes a call, he picks up the the item, he's holding it. I'm thinking that every time he holds it and picks it up, there is an energy that is going from the man to the object. Yeah. What I don't, what I don't hear is that the object itself has its own energy. So I guess what I'm, what I'm, where I'm kind of going is, you know, do you think that people put their positive or their negative or maybe their neutral energies on the things that they handle with a regular on a regular basis. Gary was talking about psychometry earlier. You can see a person's life. Can you, can you also sense that they have transferred very positive energy or very negative energy to something? Well, see, you have to understand about the object itself. You see, if it's something that's very personal to them, uh, that little toy is a very personal item to that man. His phone isn't. That was the tool. So if I touch the phone, I don't really see anything. But if it was his wedding picture that was on there or this toy that he looked at all the time and it, brought, it was went into his soul, so to speak, that, that will carry the energy. Other than that, it's like most other things, there's nothing there. And and what about when we talk about haunted objects? Where does where does that haunted object get its haunting from? Well, let's say if I was a very negative person or very evil person, and there's objects that I have that I I treasure that you know it's something that I look at, let's say, like, for example, uh, if I had on my wall an axe, and I had this axe, and I looked at it, and I I was holding it, and I was just dreaming about chopping somebody's head off, and, you know, dreaming about it, like, this is going to be a great thing. Unfortunately, that negativity will go into that axe. And so when I touch the axe, it's like, oh, my, you know, we got somebody really deranged here. And, uh, you know, I've been on uh, in situations where I could touch a bed or something and find out that, you know, some ghastly things were going on here. Or they, sometimes like even a car, if I touch a car, I could tell you who owned it and if they loved this car and everything else because they left a positive energy to it. But, of course, if there's a positive, there's a negative, there's other people who put out negative energy. And that will be on haunted objects. Like John Baptist, you know, he has a whole museum full of negative items. I was there. Uh, I was there with Rosemary Ellen Guiley. And he wanted me to take a personal tour with those people there for me to go through it and give my impression of the things he had there. 
And that's what I did. And I, I came across a couple objects that were uh, bad. And when I told him, remember, they're just objects. There's no signs or anything on them. They're just items. And so right. one was a, uh, a photograph of four women. They're like sisters. And I grabbed that picture and I held it and I said, these women are bad. They're evil. And I went into details about it. And he just stared at me and he looked at Rosemary and, and they're looking at me saying all this stuff. And so Rosemary said, is anything he's saying make sense? He goes, those four women were very evil, crazy women who would think nothing of torturing small animals, you know, chasing uh, kids from their property, trying to hurt them. He goes, they were, they're like insane. They were four sisters that were insane. And I, and I spotted it right away. And then I saw a rock on, on the floor and I touched the rock and I said, and I just held up the rock and I said, there's a lot of stories going on with this rock. And he put a half a smile on and he looked at Rosemary and he says, boy, he got this. He goes, that rock was used to kill a small boy. Oh my God. So the thing, and we've talked to John Zappas before when, when John has his museum of haunted objects, I would guess that they are primarily negative, haunted negative. It isn't like you picked up a sailboat and had a good feeling about some little boy who was sailing his boat on a lake. It, it's right. that these objects he's collected are considered negative and haunted. Yes. Well, that, well, that, must, that must be a very creepy place for you to go to. Oh, of course. You know, but uh, John was a great host. You know, he was, um, you know, it, he let me do whatever I wanted to to go through the entire uh, museum. He had a lot of clowns. He had a lot of uh, dolls, which, like I said, I, I could go into, you know, I don't like dolls that are too human-like. Like, I don't like clowns. Uh, when you think about a clown, a clown is looks like a human being, but grotesque. The mouth is too wide. The eyes are too big. The hair is kind of crazy. Uh, it's out of proportion with his feet and everything. Uh, so yes. it's a grotesque human being that supposedly is supposed to be funny. But if you saw somebody who in real life who looked like a clown... You'd be terrified of. You know, that and, yeah. is now it's a reaction from you. I don't want to insult you by saying it's a phobia, but there are people who actually have a phobia around clowns and perhaps dolls as well. They don't want to be within 500 feet of them. Oh, yeah. Well, see, I don't have a phobia against clowns, except that I understand what people they don't like them and they they'll, they'll feel very uh, they're afraid of them. I can understand because they are grotesque-looking human beings, and of course they have. He had a lot of clowns in his museums. His museum is full of them. I would like to go there. Suzanne and I really should go there. Uh, no, thank you. You know, I'll, I'll go inside. You wait in the car. I'll wait in the car. <laughs> now we're talking about the bottom bing, but that's a story for another day. <laughs> we're down to about three minutes here, Carl. I just wanted to mention this to you. I'm setting you up for a, an answer here. President Lyndon Johnson used to have three TVs going on at once. He wanted to know what the people were saying. How is he being received by the media? What's Walter Cronkite saying about Huntley and Brinkley and the guys over at ABC? And that was going on a lot of the time because Johnson was rather paranoid about how his image was developing or deteriorating, particularly during the Vietnam War. Do you relate at all to the idea of having three TVs going on in your head at the same time? Yeah, that's my daily life. I have uh, these TVs going on in my head. Uh, everywhere I go, when I see a, a group of people, whatever, I just look at the people and for the most part, I could say what their lives are like because I could see it. And uh, a lot of times when I go out, let's see, out in public, if there's a wedding or there's a big party and there's too many people, I can't stand it because there's too many people 
all these images are coming to my head at one time. And it makes me dizzy, and I just want to get out of there because it's really hurting my brain. I recall... But you, but uh, you, yeah, you live in a densely populated area, though. Yeah, That but, must you know, ha- for, happen a lot. Yeah, but it's like I don't really walk through crowds. I'm usually at my home or whatever, and I, right. I, I choose, you know, how big the crowd is. Ah, you know, okay. And in a moment, can you explain, Carl, what it must be like when you just want to lay down at night and get a good night's rest? Oh, it's very difficult. Very, very difficult. I've taken every type of medication there is to get asleep, and it's, it's chancy. For the most part, I rarely get a good night's sleep because when I go to sleep, everything amplifies itself, and I start seeing things that happen during the day, and it's just too much for me. I'm sorry that you have that experience. It would be wonderful if this were a delightful gift, but with that gift comes a burden, Carl, I can tell. A price. Yeah. You pay a price, a toll. Yeah. Yet a another toll hey, in New York. Another New toll in New Jersey. Again with the tolls. That's right. <laughs> well, Carl Petrie, we're just delighted every time you can join us. We consider you family. You know that. And we look forward to seeing you again soon, I hope. His books, Absent Witness. And Somewhere the Dead Are Singing, they are two thin volumes that speak volumes, and I encourage people to get them. You can always go on Amazon or anywhere you purchase your books. Add these to your library of metaphysical studies. Well worth it. Carl Petrie, thank you for joining us. We look forward to our next visit on air. And I look forward to it, too. I enjoy the show. All right. Join us next week. We'll do this all over again with other people. What do you think, Gary? I think we'll be back. Sounds like a good idea to me. Also, have yourselves a great weekend and a great week ahead. Here's what's coming up next week on Manson Mitchell. On Friday, Manson Mitchell welcomed Marie D. Jones, author of The Afterlife Book, Heaven, Hell, and Life After Death, Journey Through the Science Behind Energy and Consciousness. On Saturday, Matt Shea sits in the guest host seat and talks to Kevin McDonald, another popular radio broadcaster on KKNW. Be prepared for a fascinating conversation. Bringing you mastery and mystery since 2007. We are Manson Mitchell, Friday and Saturday mornings at 10 on Alternative Talk, AM 1150.